you can kind of maintain your your buzz or the, the level of effect you're looking for just by altering how often you puff on that cigarette or how often you pull on that uh, that vaporizer with uh, with a uh, an edible and that this is one of the big uh, challenges with with edibles um, there isn't a lot of uh, quality control over their uh, manufacturer or how they're packaged or even for users to understand you know how exactly how much is a dose and once you've swallowed that and it's uh, in the stomach and it starts to be absorbed um, if you start to have a bad experience or a bad trip or you're you're feeling overwhelmed by the effect you're pretty much stuck with it this podcast is not a source of legal advice. No two legal cases are the same. Contact an attorney if you require legal assistance. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast. Welcome back to New Jersey Criminal Podcast. Continuing in our cannabis series, we have world-renowned forensic toxicologist, Dr. Barry Logan, uh, who's here to speak with us on cannabis impairment uh, particularly while driving. Dr. Logan is a senior vice president of forensic sciences and chief scientist at National Medical Services Labs. Uh, there he leads a team of forensic toxicologists and certifying scientists. He's also the executive director of the nonprofit Center for Forensic Science Research and Education and is a fellow of the American Board of Forensic Toxicologists. Dr. Logan has over 150 publications and over 600 presentations in forensic toxicology and analytical chemistry. Dr. Logan, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to join us here at NJ Criminal Podcast. Uh, given the uh, somewhat recent legalization of marijuana here in the state of New Jersey, uh, obviously one of the big issues that we are focusing on is how uh, police are going to be able to tell if someone is uh, under the influence and is impaired uh, after having used cannabis in any format and are driving, whether or not they're involved in an accident or not, uh, and also uh, what the public ought to know about how marijuana metabolizes in the system. Uh, and so you are the, uh, the person I reached out to, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Oh, my pleasure. So just uh, before we get into it, how, how long have you been studying the effects of marijuana uh, as, a, uh, as a recreational drug or even as a medicinal, medicinal drug um, in, in, your, in your lifetime, in your studies? Uh, so I've been a forensic toxicologist for over 30 years, and um, I would say that when I got into the field, the focus really was on alcohol and driving, and um, there had been a lot of research done over the last 50, 70 years on, on alcohol and driving, and it was the um, the focus of law enforcement uh, activity because they had uh, tools in terms of field sobriety tests and, and roadside breath testers or screening testers for, uh, for, for verifying their opinion that somebody was under the influence of alcohol as part of their investigation. Um, but it was probably in the 1990s that um, more attention started to be paid to uh, the role of drugs and driving. And from the earliest days, marijuana has always been uh, one of the most frequently uh, detected drugs in impaired driving populations and in, um, in uh, decedents in fatal motor vehicle crashes. So it's been on our radar in the toxicology community for 
for a long time. The landscape, as you indicated, has really changed in the last few years with uh, first uh, medical cannabis and now uh, legalization of, of recreational cannabis. So um, we're seeing a lot more of these cases and we're getting asked a lot more questions about it. Right. And, and in New Jersey, uh, police who are trained as drug recognition experts, uh, that, their, that testimony by those types of officers has been, has been challenged and is, is being challenged uh, all the way up to the New Jersey Supreme Court. Uh, there's a case, uh, State versus Olanowski, which there was a, a, actually just last week a special master report, which is now going to go before the Supreme Court, and we're going to be talking about that particular case in some more detail. Um, and I know at that, you know, there were hearings uh, before the special master, and there was a lot of uh, expert testimony presented. But I want to just ask you, I mean, I guess we, we all can probably say, uh, you know, we anybody can tell when someone is high, right? That's the layman's perspective. Um, the question becomes, you know, what are the physiological effects and the cognitive and psychomotor effects, and how does that affect an individual's ability to operate a motor vehicle? Sure. So there's a number of ways that you can evaluate um, uh, a person's sobriety or their their um, fitness to drive a, a motor vehicle in a research environment. You can look at um, uh, their performance in laboratory-based tests, so things like measuring re reaction time, response time, uh, error rate in in uh, uh, in uh, psychomotor tests. Um, and then there are uh, other ways of studying drugs. You can put people in driving simulators uh, where you like a, a almost like a video game a simulation of driving where you can score their performance and then there are other studies uh, particularly those that have been performed in europe where they put people uh, in uh, instrumented vehicles with uh, dual controls and uh, send them out to drive on the the road so there's a number of different ways to get information about the effects of the drug on a person's uh, motor skills either in that kind of isolated environment in the lab or uh, or behind the wheel of an actual uh, vehicle uh, and the and the data are and then there's other ways to assess it too. You can look at uh, rates of involvement of uh, drug positivity in motor vehicle crashes and, and in motor vehicle fatalities. And when we look at the the skills necessary for safe driving, so attention, reaction time, um, uh, information processing, uh, vehicle control, uh, you can identify uh, definite evidence of impairment. Uh, or decrement in performance in these individual tasks in in that kind of research environment, both in in just computer tests and in um, in uh, driving simulators. Um, when you, uh, however, go and look at um, whether there appears to be an increased crash risk in drivers who subsequently test positive for cannabis, that data is not as convincing. Um, uh, it, it varies from from study to study, but there isn't as much evidence of um, uh, an increase in crash risk involvement for uh, people driving with marijuana or after smoking marijuana with the, the active drug in their system. So um, from my perspective and, and most of the toxicology community, um, really the determination of impairment is something that needs to be made by somebody who's looking at the subject at the time proximate to their driving and looking for these indicators of, of impairment. 
Um, and then a chemical test, typically of a person's blood, um, or increasingly uh, oral fluid, uh, to determine uh, what drugs they have in their system that might account for that impairment. Now, why is it that the crash rate uh, is not as high with individuals who have ingested marijuana? Is there, is there a reason for that? I mean, I guess really my question probably ought to start with, what happens when someone ingests marijuana or cannabis into their body? What, what, how does the body process it? Uh, so when a person is uh, uh, using marijuana, and historically that meant smoking, but of course now um, there's uh, people who are vaping uh, cannabis and cannabis products and extracts, and there are uh, a whole range of edibles that contain uh, the active component of marijuana. And the the effect profile is a little different depending on how you ingest it. If you smoke a marijuana-containing product um, or, or inhale the vapor, that drug gets to the brain pretty quickly. So you start to experience effects very shortly after you, you smoke it. In fact, when people smoke marijuana, very often they're what we call titrating their effects. So they they will puff on a cigarette or, or a puff on a, a vaporizer until they get to the level of uh, 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 effect that they are looking for, that it makes that's enjoyable to them, that they are uh, seeking when they use the drug. Um, with some of the edibles, um, the, the kinetics are a little different. It takes longer for the drug to get into the body, to be absorbed. It's broken down a little differently. Uh, and the uh, once the, the once you've ingested the drug, it's really not coming back out. You're 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 committed to that experience. Uh, whereas if you're smoking, you can just stop uh, puffing on the on the cigarette. Um, so there can be differences in uh, the effect based on how it's ingested. But in general, uh, people report uh, relaxation, uh, elation. Uh, they feel uh, uh, some uh, uh, detachment from uh, their uh, everyday concerns, um, and the physiological effects include some effects on the eyes, particularly the eyes' ability to, uh, to focus or to converge. Um, and then, uh, what probably what's more concerned with respect to uh, impairment is is kind of the distracting effect of the experience of being uh, high uh, on the drug and paying more attention to that than you are to a complex task like driving. Now, in some states, they have uh, given a certain number of, uh, I think it's nanograms in the body, and New Jersey doesn't have that type of cutoff. So, um, you know, I guess first, does tolerance play a part in the effects of marijuana on an individual's ability to drive, and if it does, then um, you know, is that something that should be taken into consideration? Uh, so yes, there is some tolerance to the effects of marijuana, and that, in fact, is why, uh, in my opinion, at least, it's uh, that those per se levels um, uh, for for THC, the active component in in marijuana, uh, are not such a good idea because. Not everybody is affected the same way with the given concentration of THC in their blood. But what's probably more important with respect to um, the, the lack of utility of a per se level 
is uh, the kinetics of the drug. So if somebody smokes or somebody I beg your pardon, drinks alcohol, um, on average, they can eliminate or, or metabolize about the equivalent of one drink per hour. So over a period of an hour, or a couple of hours, a person's blood alcohol concentration doesn't change uh, dramatically, and it, it changes in a predictable way. When somebody uh, smokes marijuana, um, the concentration of marijuana in the blood drops precipitously. So within about um, 15 minutes after the end of smoking, uh, the person's the level of THC in the person's blood has fallen about 60% from what it was at its peak. So over that period of 15 minutes, a drop of about 60%. So when you extend that out, uh, after about 30 minutes, it's fallen to about 20% of the peak. And if you think about in a traffic investigation or a traffic arrest, how long does it take to get that blood sample from the person? It's typically going to be uh, 90 minutes, an hour to 90 minutes or longer, depending on where uh, the arrest takes place and, and how far they are from somewhere where blood can be drawn. So the level of THC that you're measuring in the person's blood bears no relation to what it was at the time they were actually driving. So um, that's um, uh, the reason why uh, that number is really not that helpful in terms of uh, identifying people who are under the, the influence. And that's why I come back to the importance of of having a way of documenting the person's appearance, demeanor, their performance in uh, psychomotor tests uh, as a way to determine whether they were impaired. Uh, there's still enough THC left in the blood after a couple of hours to demonstrate that the person was exposed, uh, and that may explain their, uh, their uh, evident impairment uh, at, at the time of driving. But these, these two pieces really uh, are complementary. You can't infer impairment from uh, the concentration in the blood. I have two follow-up questions to that. The, the first is most people are familiar with the uh, the way alcohol is metabolized and as you said about a, a drink per hour uh, and, and most people know what means you know a beer 12 ounces, a glass of wine 5 ounces, a hard alcohol one, one or two ounces I think. Does it also depend on uh, the the type of cannabis product that a person is ingesting? In other words, you know, strength of the THC in that particular product, is that something that people are going to have to pay attention to and how it affects their system? That's my first question. And then uh, a follow-up to that would be, um, with regard to taking a blood draw from an individual, if you have somebody who's a heavy user of marijuana, say a daily user of marijuana. It was always my understanding that marijuana could stay in your system um, beyond 30 days. So, you know, would a blood draw be helpful in any event? Um, because if a, a person's going to show that they have THC in their, in their system, or is there a certain type of blood analysis that can be done that would show the active metabolite of THC in that person's blood? Um, so in answer to the, the first part of the question, yes, the, with any drug, the more of it you take, the more profound the effect is going to be. So uh, if you're a naive user of the drug and you um, just take a, a set dose, you, you, you're going to experience a lot greater effects than if you're an experienced user. And like I said, you're, you're titrating your dose, so you're, you're taking enough of the drug, whether it's in concentrated form, as in like a dab or a, 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 a e-liquid, 
um, until you get to the kind of effect that you want to, to, to achieve, the desirable effect that you're using the drug for. Um, and then because you're, the, the drug is absorbed very quickly after smoking, if you, um, and then it drops off very, very quickly after it reaches its peak, you can kind of maintain your, your buzz or the, the level of effect you're looking for just by altering how often you puff on that cigarette or how often you pull on that, uh, that vaporizer. With, uh, with a, uh, an edible, and that, this is one of the big uh, challenges with, with edibles, um, there isn't a lot of uh, quality control over their uh, manufacture or how they're packaged or even for users to understand you know, how, exactly how much is a dose. And once you've swallowed that and it's uh, in the stomach and it starts to be absorbed, um, if you start to have a bad experience or a bad trip or you're, you're feeling overwhelmed by the effect, you're pretty much stuck with it. Thank you for listening in. Stay tuned for the next part in this conversation. If you sell by referral, relationship building, and network marketing, pick a time and let's talk about podcasting. You might be surprised. When done correctly, all you have to do is have the conversations. If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast.